There's a popular phrase used these days to describe things that are easy or are supposed to be easy, right? Something that's easy to understand, you've heard the expression used, hey, it's not rocket science, right? It's not rocket science. Unfortunately, some of the things that people have described using that term might as well be rocket science to me. You want to tell me how to receive email on my smartphone? That's rocket science to me. Not to my children, but to me. You want me to help you fix the head gasket on your car? Rocket science. You want me to take out a sewing machine and alter the waistline on a dress your daughter is wearing to her prom? That's rocket science for me. It's interesting to me that in an age of increased specialization, there are more and more things that are out of my reach. When I was a college student, I was able to complete modest repairs on my automobile. Today, almost any car repair quickly places me in deep water. But car repair isn't rocket science to everyone. There are lots of folks, some seated in these very pews, who are able to do most of their own car repairs. They are simply smarter and more experienced than I am. And I know a couple of people in these pews who actually sewed and created their own daughter's wedding dress. Still feels like rocket science to me. I'm amazed at the special gifts that some specific people have. But I'd like to make a distinction here. Sometimes a particular activity or topic feels like rocket science because the level of experience or intelligence necessary is difficult to attain or not widely available and maybe just requires a higher level of intelligence. Other times, we place things into the category of rocket science because we are either too lazy to learn how to do them or we just don't want to do them. Recently, forgive my boasting, I replaced a headlight in one of my vehicles. Five years ago, I would have told you that such a repair on a modern vehicle was rocket science to me, way beyond my ability. But now we have this thing called YouTube. And you can learn how to do all kinds of things on YouTube if you want to learn how to do it. The question is, do you really want to learn how? Today, our passage talks about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And I want you to understand something right from the beginning. Nothing that is important in the gospel of Jesus Christ requires rocket science intelligent to be understood. All the important stuff in the gospel is easy peasy. It has to be that way. 
because entrance into the kingdom of God is for everyone, regardless of how intelligent or religious or religiously experienced a person might be. This information that you need to enter the kingdom of God is and always will be easy peasy. Listen to what Paul says to a group of people who are caught up in the eloquence of an early Christian speaker rather than paying attention to what the true content of the gospel message is. This is 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who believe. I think the King James Version used to read that verse as God decided through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And perhaps that is the better translation. For Jews ask for signs and the Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no one might boast in the presence of God. As it's written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You can almost feel from the wording, right? Paul is shouting here. He's shouting. He doesn't have the all caps feature on his keyboard to do so, but he's shouting here. The content of this message is simple. It's simple, simple, simple. We preach Christ crucified. That's the message in two words. We preach Christ crucified. Now there were lots of questions in the early days of exactly what that meant. I mean, Jesus didn't write any books, didn't leave any written instructions behind. He only left simple people behind to tell the message. The Holy Spirit guided the church in her early days through the teaching of the apostles. And when Paul says he is proclaiming Christ and Christ crucified, it means a few simple things. First of all, he's proclaiming Christ. His life is an example to us. 
He's holding up Christ so that we can see him, so that we can view him, so that we can model our lives on him. That's what Christ means. He's preaching Christ, the life of Christ. And it deserves all of our attention. And when he says Christ crucified, he means that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the message. Those who accept his sacrifice, those who accept Jesus as Lord, are made new and enter the kingdom of God. The life of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, that's the gospel. That's what Paul proclaims. And that is not rocket science. That is simple to grasp. It is easy to understand. Pay attention to the life of Christ. Accept his sacrifice for your life and you may enter the kingdom of God. But making the simple choice to humble ourselves before God and make him the Lord of our lives is simply a first step. It's step number one. Once a beginning is made, we have to figure out how to live as Christians, as Christ followers. That's the place we look to the life and teachings of Jesus. And that is why some of us may say, living as a Christian feels like rocket science. It's one thing to understand what the gospel is and to step into it. It's another thing, day after day, moment by moment, to actually follow the example of Christ in our lives and actually do it. And it might feel like rocket science to some. That's a problem. Living as a Christian isn't rocket science because we can't understand how to do it. Living as a Christian may feel like rocket science because often we don't want to do it or we're not sure that we want to do it or, or we're being asked to make hard choices and we're afraid what will happen to us if we make the choices to do the things that we know we should because they're obvious from the life of Christ, they're obvious from the word of the gospel, but we're just not sure we're all in on this thing and we're still making choices and deciding and, and flipping a coin every time the hard thing shows up in our lives. So let's not pretend it's too hard to understand or figure out this living as a Christian. Let's just be honest and say, we're not always sure we want to. And sometimes we are not sure living according to the teachings of Jesus is best for us. We're conflicted. But that is a problem. That is a problem. You can't just say, Jesus is Lord some of the time. If he's not Lord all the time, he's not Lord for you. You're either in the kingdom or you're not in the kingdom. There isn't any like fence straddling opportunities. You can't live with one foot in and one foot out. 
When you step in, you're in. And it's time to live worthy of the high calling you have received in Christ Jesus. I will grant you Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5 can make it hard to believe that this is what Jesus really wants of us because it's so discordant to what the culture calls to us. There's a conflict between the things that Jesus calls us to and what the culture values. But listen to Matthew 5 and remember these words. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went, he went up the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to speak and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are the fundamental teachings of Jesus. Except that we don't want to be merciful. We would rather be angry, we would rather get revenge. We don't really want to be peacemakers. We want to embrace the revolution. Bring the kingdom of God by force. Give everyone on Facebook a piece of our mind. Set them all straight. And we know that meek people never get ahead and we want to get ahead. And what does it even mean to be poor in spirit? Being poor in spirit means that we recognize moment by moment our constant need of God. We recognize that we have no reason to boast before God about our accomplishments. We have no reason to rely on our own gifts or abilities. Anything we've done, anything we've achieved, and if we are able to make any difference in the future, it will be because of God's gracious action. It will be because God has allowed it, enabled it, resourced it, and inspired it. If anyone's going to boast in anything, we boast in the Lord, Paul says. Following these rules for living, living in reliance upon God, seeking peace,
peace and promoting peace, comforting those that mourn, refusing to be prideful, seeking diligently after God and his ways. None of those things are rocket science. But neither are they things we always want to do. Last week we talked about the call of Christ to the lives of his disciples to become fishers of men, fishers of people. We use the term evangelizing to sort of define all of that. Uh, This idea that we're trying to invite other folks to enter the kingdom of God with us. We want them to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. We want them to emulate our life in the kingdom of God. One of the primary ways of inviting folks to step into the kingdom is by sharing the way we live, of demonstrating what life in the kingdom looks like. But if the way we are living doesn't really reveal what life in the kingdom is supposed to be like, what are we attracting people to? What are we trying to invite them into if our lives are so inconsistent that when they watch, they say, now why would I want that? Why would I want that gloomy, pessimistic, argumentative, self-first kind of experience for myself? Remember, Paul's preaching Christ crucified, right? And we're invited to look at the life of Christ and make the life of Christ our model. And so the joy of the Lord should be primary in our lives. We should be filled with the joy of the Lord. But if we're living in a way that doesn't reflect that, we have to wonder what we're trying to attract folks to. Are there frustrations in your life that reveal that you are in conflict with your own decision? Do these frustrations keep you from being a witness for Christ? Are you afraid of being labeled a Christian because you don't measure up to your own idea of what a Christian should be? You understand the dilemma, right? Years ago, there used to be a bumper sticker, honk if you love Jesus. But some of us can't put that on our car because our driving habits are so bad. We don't want anyone to know we're Christian, right? So we don't want to be publicly labeled as a Christian because our lives are inconsistent with the label. And that's a problem. We should have a I love Jesus bumper sticker right on our t-shirt. And we should live like we love Jesus. And that our lives represent Christ crucified, understanding we aren't gonna do this perfectly, but by the mercy and grace of God, he will enable us to reflect his glory. That's possible for us. Are we fishing to bring folks into the kingdom of God or are we just treading water trying to keep our own heads from going under? Is this do what I say, but not as I do? We cannot hope to fulfill the mission of God in the world if we choose to ignore the teachings of Jesus in our own lives. The good news is this. 
God wants you to succeed. He wants you to live a victorious Christian life here and now. I'm convinced that a part of the secret of how you do that is, well, here in Romans and here in Philippians. This is what Romans 8.31 says. If God is for us, did you catch that right off the bat? If God is for us, the implication is you know God is for you, right? That's what's being said here. God is for you. He is invested in your success. He is invested in your joy. He is invested in coming alongside you when you're grieving and mourning and your brothers and sisters in Christ are invested in the same things for you. So God is for you. If God is for, for us, who can be against us? Right? That's what it says. In all these things, when he asks what could possibly separate us from the love of God, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. I'm convinced that victorious Christian living is possible for us. And a secret of it is in Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. I always wonder how our lives would be changed if we honestly believed that Jesus was standing next to us moment by moment in our lives. The witness of scripture is he's with us. The witness of scripture is he's closer than that because by his Holy Spirit, he is in the heart of all the believers. The Spirit has already been given to us. The Spirit has been given as a down payment, a deposit on the promises of God in eternity. And so God is with us. Didn't we just come through Christmas? Didn't we say that like 472,000 times? God is with us. But do we live as if God is with us? Do we live as if the Holy Spirit is in us? Do we have that conviction? And how would our life be different if we honestly believed moment by moment that God was with us and God is in us? I think that would bring a little more rejoicing. I think our driving habits would improve. I think there would be a consistency that was built in our lives because we would have a firmer grasp on the, of the assurance that the Spirit was with us to enable us to live the victorious Christian lives he's called us to live. We have to exercise the faith to believe he's here. Do not, do not be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be known to God. Verse seven, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Are you joyful in this life? Do you have a sense of the peace of God in your heart? Is the peace of Christ guarding your heart and your mind? Are you experiencing the life that Christ calls us to experience? The last thing the church needs, 
the last thing the kingdom of God needs is additional representatives or ambassadors that don't model the life of Christ. It's no wonder that the church of Jesus Christ has such a poor reputation in the culture today. We have a public relations problem. Too many folks who have forgotten that God loves them and calls them to be peacemakers. Too many folks claiming to be Christian who don't much look like it. We're not those folks, are we? We're the folks for whom the Holy Spirit has poured his love into our hearts, made us generous and gracious, kind and compassionate. We mourn with those who are mourning. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We take our lead from the Holy Spirit. And when we mess up, we quickly apologize and say, Lord, forgive me. Neighbor, forgive me. This isn't who I want to be. I want to be one of the victorious children of God who live with joy in this life. Now I'm not saying that there aren't times in our lives when circumstances conspire to place us in the category of grieving and mourning. There are losses. We have friends who leave, we're betrayed, relatives who pass away, and there's grieving, there's difficulty. And it is perfectly correct to grieve when we've had a loss. But we don't live in our grief forever, and we invite Christ into our lives to comfort us so that we can return to reflecting his glory. And I suspect that even in our grieving, we can reflect his glory by appropriately accessing the resources of God for us during those times. I'm not saying that the Christian life is continual happiness. Happiness isn't the same thing as joy. Joy is the deep-seated conviction that the promises of God are true, that his presence with me now is complete, that he is utterly reliable, that he will never leave me, that he will enable me to climb whatever mountain I encounter, and that it's his desire that I do that in the company of my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not rocket science to follow Jesus. If we are determined to follow Jesus. It becomes more difficult when we're not sure of our own decision. The Holy Spirit will let you know if there are areas in your life where you're not completely surrendered to Christ. The Holy Spirit will let you know if there are actions or things you're pursuing that aren't appropriate. 
And if you listen to the voice of the Spirit, I am convinced the Holy Spirit never has any difficulty communicating his will to his children. If we don't want to hear it, that's a different matter, but that's on us, not on him. He's perfectly able to let us know exactly what we need to know. What do the scriptures say? The Holy Spirit will come and guide you into all truth, right? That's the Holy Spirit's job. He tells us what's true about Christ and about us. And so if you want to know the condition of your surrender to him, you just say, hey, I want to know. And you'll know. You'll know if there are additional steps that you have to take, if there are course corrections you have to make. The Spirit is perfectly capable of letting us know that. We just have to want to know. We have got to decide whether we're going to follow him completely or pretend that we're straddling the fence. Because we never get to the mission of Christ if we're not completely surrendered to him. We never get there. And we must get there if we're going to honor him. I'm going to pray in a moment. And after I pray, we're going to sing a song together. And while we're singing that song, I would invite you to ask the Spirit about the condition of your heart, whether you're surrendered to him or not. And if you sort of feel the Holy Spirit drawing you and saying, hey, there's some areas that you need to surrender. I'd like to have a prayer with you specifically at the end of the service. So that when we're done singing, we can pray together. So if while we're singing you sense this, I would invite you just to come and stand before the altar here. And then we will pray together for the mercy of Christ and the anointing of the Spirit to enable us to please Him. Okay? Would you stand with me while we pray? Holy Spirit, we open our hearts to you this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us what is true. That if there are ways in which the choices we make lead to a confusion about our witness, of our testimony, of our example to others. If there are things about the choices we make that make it difficult for others to see Christ in us. If there's just stuff that's messed up in us, Lord, would you tell us today? We'd like to know. And would you give us the courage to make choices to follow you consistently? Tell us the truth about ourselves and grant us your mercy that we might be able to commit ourselves completely to you. This is our prayer this morning. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour 
my one defense, my righteousness. O God, how I need you. If you want to come and stand in front of the altar while we sing this again, come now. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Let's pray again. Father, by the mercies of Christ, would you pour out your spirit in our lives? Would you make us aware of any place where it's difficult for the reflection of Jesus to be seen in our lives? Make us aware of any place that we have not committed to you. Make us aware of any, of any new battlefield in our lives that we've not surrendered to you completely. And by your grace, help us, Lord, to surrender all of those things to you. By your mercy, show us now how to appropriately serve you in every area. Lord Jesus, restore our joy in our salvation. Create in us clean hearts and clean minds, Lord. Help us. It is our desire to honor you now and always. It is our desire to live in ways that reflect your glory with integrity, that are pleasing to you, Lord. And we ask, Lord, would you draw people into the kingdom by our example? Would you use us to your glory? Would you help us in these days? Don't let any pride exist in us that makes us self-reliant or, or believes that we can do this on our own. But keep us, Lord, humbly before you day by day and moment by moment. We don't desire to boast in our own strength, Lord. We rely on you. And any boasting we do will be boasting about your grace and your mercy and your compassion and your patience because you have demonstrated all of those to us. Thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit in our lives. Enable us now to live as your children. And now may the glory of God be reflected in your faces and in your lives. And may your joy overflow to the glory of God now and forever. Amen.